And so hallelujah, Lord, because your mercy leads us through valleys of sorrow to rivers of joy. And we pray that your mercy would lead us this morning, that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to preach. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to think, that your word would enter us and cause us to think and to ponder and to feel and to go places that we haven't been before. Help us to preach, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a legend of a holy man that lived each moment in incredible wonder and joy. His life was like a dance, and one night he camped outside of this village, and a man from the village came running to him uh, in the evening uh, saying, give me the stone, give me the stone, give me the stone, give me the stone, and the holy man said, what stone? And he said, the Lord told me in a dream that you would come and camp outside of our village and you would give me a stone that would make me rich forever. And the holy man looked in his bag and he said, oh, it must be this stone. And he pulled out this big stone that he found on the path. He said, I found this while I was walking. The, the Lord must have meant for me to find it and give it to you. And so he handed this stone to the man. It was a 10-pound diamond. Largest in the world. The man from the village looked at it in, uh, in wonder and awe, and, and, he, and he took the diamond and he left. But that night he couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned all night. In the morning, he went out to the man that was sleeping on the side of the village, and he says, give me the wealth that gives you the ability to give away a 10-pound diamond so easily. What kind of person could give away a 10-pound diamond so easily. Mark chapter 10, verse 13, and they were bringing children, pideon, little children, the kind that don't know the value of things, but that do know the value of people, like, like Jesus. Little children seem to, to really like Jesus. Did you notice that in the Bible? That tells you something about Jesus, doesn't it? And they were bringing little children to him, that he might uh, touch them. Dostoevsky wrote, the soul is healed by being with children. Now, I don't think that Jesus needed his soul necessarily to be healed, but maybe uh, he felt like he was at home with the little children. Maybe the little children felt at home with Jesus, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. They're, they're bringing ch children, and the, the disciples rebuked the children. Well, children are irresponsible, right? I mean, the guys were beginning to see that Jesus might just, in fact, be the Messiah. I mean, what if one of these little rugrats sitting on his lap should jam his finger up his nose or something? Or wet himself, for God's sake, on the lap of the Messiah. They rebuked the children. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He grew furious and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Literally, of such is the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God consists of children. Such belongs the kingdom. But truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. We must receive the kingdom of God like children. And as we preached last week in, in Matthew, we must become like children, says Jesus, to enter. So how do children receive and enter? 
You know, Jesus never asked you to study Greek grammar or ancient Hebrew verbs or Karl Barth or Soren Kierkegaard or Fyodor Dostoevsky or systematic theology or church history. However, he did ask you to study things like lilies and birds of the air and seasons and your own body and, and children. Children. He asked you to study children. So how do children enter your kingdom and receive your blessing. Susan and I had four children in order that we could study them and find out how to receive and enter the kingdom of God. And so we did for quite some time and the results were kind of amazing. Um, uh, how do they receive and enter? Well, first of all, they enter boldly. They just enter boldly demanding attention. And this must have been one of the reasons that the disciples rebuked the little children. Children actually believe that they are God's gift to the world as if for no other reason than they exist. I mean, that they just believe they're good, even good, good for nothing. That is, they don't earn their value, they assume it. I mean, they actually think, of course you'd kiss me, of course you'd hug me, of course you'd bless me, because I'm wonderful. And, and what is a Messiah anyway? Jesus really seemed to love that. You know, when my children were little, they'd expect me to hang their artwork on top of everything else. I mean, if I owned the Mona Lisa, they would expect me to hang their artwork over the Mona Lisa. And their art still hangs in my office. And they may wonder this day, now that they're in their 20s, why is this art still hanging in your office? And if they wonder, that's because they've forgotten how incredibly valuable they truly are. I heard of one little girl. Her parents walked in the room during a thunderstorm. She's plastered against a plate glass window, and they go, what are you doing? And she said, God's trying to take my picture. Of course, of course, of course he is. Little children actually believe they are so valuable that of course someone would die for them. That is, they believe the truth. Do you believe the truth? I remember as a child, I had, I really had no, I had great parents. I had no doubt that they would die for me. I was that valuable. And my parents affirmed that belief. You know, unless a child has been abused, a little child assumes their own priceless value. That is, they assume the truth. For God is not willing that one of these little ones should perish, as we read last week. And so how do they enter? Well, when I was a child, I'd walk right past the secretary, I'd walk right past the elders, I'd walk right past the other pastors, right into the office of the king of the kingdom of First Presbyterian Littleton, of Littleton Colorado, First Presbyterian Church of Littleton, Colorado, and I'd sit on his lap, the pastor of the church. I'm sitting on his lap. And Jesus said, you must enter the kingdom like a child. Wow through the outer courts, past the high priest and the brazen altar, behind the veil, climb up on the Ark of the Covenant, sit on the mercy seat and say, Daddy, I'm home. You must enter the kingdom like a child. Children enter boldly, like they, they have that much value. They demand attention now, in the present, the, the now, that's where they live. At that moment is where we live, where we feel, where we touch, where we encounter persons. And so what does Satan try to do? He tries to catch us in the past with guilt, or he tries to get us to dwell on the future in anxiety. But God wants us to attend to 
Two things chiefly, writes C.S. Lewis, eternity itself and the moment at which time touches eternity, the present moment, eternal life now. The children on Jesus' lap are not thinking, what have I done to deserve this, the past? Or what will this require of me now that I have done it, the, the future? They're thinking, I like this man with the beard. I know him. He knows me. Eternal life is knowing him, and children live in that moment. Children enter boldly, assuming their value, yet they don't believe that they've earned anything and don't plan to have to earn anything. They live in the moment. You know, you can know about people in the past, and you can worry about people in the future, but you can only know a person, not just about a person, but know a person now, in the present moment. Like those toddlers knew Jesus, and the scribes and Pharisees did not. And how do children receive things? Well. They receive everything as a gift. I mean, they really have no choice. That's the only way they can do it. They receive everything as grace because every child is completely poor. A little child cannot own a car or a house or have a bank account. Legally, legally, they are dirt poor. My children were dirt poor. And yet, they lived in a wonderful house, they rode in a very nice Dodge Caravan minivan, and they ate wonderful food, none of which they paid for. Dirt poor, and yet rich. You can be dirt poor and watch the sunset. Hug a child. Look at the Grand Canyon. You own none of those things. Dirt poor yet rich. Children are poor and everything, everything is gift, gift, gift. And children, legally, they, they, and they, they really are powerless. I mean, a, a, a one-year-old cannot sue his, his mother. When my children were, were little, they were absolutely, absolutely powerless. And yet, no one had more power over me than them. I mean, I, I was willing to die for them. You know, if someone is willing to die for you, let's just say, imagine, if somebody was, well, that would mean that you had an incredible and mystical power over that person. Blessed are the meek, the powerless, the little children, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor, powerless, Ignorant. I mean, I remember Jonathan when he was three, one day at the department store, he accidentally knocked over a mannequin. He started screaming in the store, I killed her, I killed her, I killed her. <laughs> Little children are stupid. They're stupid. <laughs> and, and, and they know it. They know it. In other words, they're, they're humble. Therefore, they must receive things by grace as, as a gift. Everything is a gift. They can't buy the things. They can't acquire them with power. They can't comprehend them with the mind. I mean, Jonathan actually thought that kind of the mannequin was alive, that everything was alive. They're ignorant, and so what do they do? They live in wonder. I mean, when my kids were little, seriously, they could stand in front of the toilet for like an hour flushing it, watching the water go down the hole. They put the toilet paper and it would come undone, you know, and light switches were just amazing. 
For a little child, a 10-pound bag of mud is easily as wonderful as a 10-pound diamond. Maybe more wonderful, because you can do more with mud than you can with a diamond. It's not until they learn that anyone can own mud, but few can own diamonds that they want diamonds more. And what happens if you own a bunch of diamonds? They begin to look like mud. When Coleman was three, first thing I'd ask him in the morning when he'd come down the stairs, I'd say, Coleman, what did you dream of last night? And he'd say, I dreamed of stars, rainbows, and school buses. <laughs> as if school buses were just as wonderful as rainbows and stars. I mean, they were all incomprehensible mysteries that came through grace. But as we get older, we begin to not only understand the internal combustion engine in school buses, uh, but we begin to understand the visible spectrum of light and the fusion reactions inside of stars. We comprehend stars, but maybe that's only an illusion. Maybe the talking star in Narnia was right. Burning gas? Burning gas? That's not what a star is. <laughs> that's just what a star is made of. Carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, that's not what a person is. That's just what a person is made of. Well, the day Coleman came down the stairs, and I said, Coleman, what did you dream of? And he said, well, I didn't dream of anything, as if he was all grown up. My heart sank, because he's my last, and I won't get to see the world through children's eyes again until we have grandchildren. Or I volunteer in the church nursery. Ravi Zacharias wrote this. While traveling to Chicago by train, I sat behind a man and his young son. The boy seemed intrigued by the passing scenery and described to his father everything that he saw. He talked about some children at play in a schoolyard. He mentioned the rocks in a small stream and described the sunlight's reflection upon the water. When we stopped for a freight train to cross our track, the boy tried to guess what each car might be hauling. As we neared the city, he expressed excitement over the waves of Lake Michigan and told about the many boats in the dry dock. At the end of the trip, I leaned forward and said to the father, how refreshing. To enjoy the world through the eyes of a child, he smiled and replied, yes, it is, especially if that's the only way that you can see it. He was blind. You know, according to scripture, the kingdom exists in absolute perfection in eternity, and yet perhaps it's also at hand, like Jesus said. It's just that we're blind, and we need the eyes of children to see it and to receive it. Children live in wonder. For them, the world is still alive, as if they're like a breath from someplace else, and they do not know that the world has died. I mean, when John was little, I remember we'd go to the grocery store, and we'd always have to stop in front of every Volkswagen bug, we'd hold hands and John would talk to the VW. He'd say, hi, Herbie, how are you, Herbie? You're a very, very nice Herbie. And it didn't matter if the VW didn't talk back or if I said, John, it's just a car. Didn't matter, he'd still talk. It's not just that we saw the movie The Love Bug, it's that he expects the whole world to be alive, to be personal. 
He expects the whole world to be like filled with life. Maybe he is a breath from God and he still remembers life. I mean, maybe he had it, it, it right when the mannequin fell over and he thought he killed her. I mean, he expects everything to, to be alive. Children have faith in life. They value life. They're, they're born not knowing the value of things. I mean, a bag of mud is easily as valuable as a 10-pound diamond. However, they're born knowing the value of relationships with persons. They value presence, even an infant. They value presence, touch, and time, not responsibility, plans, and programs. For, for a child, a map is not the way. A person is the way. That's how they navigate. That's how they get around. Uh, my daughter Becky, like I told you, she said when I came back from a trip with my dad, she said, oh, I was so worried you'd get lost, and then I remember that you were with your daddy, and so you couldn't get lost. That's how they navigate, a person. A dictionary is not the truth. For a child, a person is the truth. Diamonds are not their life. A person is their life. Don't get me wrong, though. Children will fight over things. They will definitely fight over things, but they don't really know the value of things. However, they do know the value of a, of a person, at least better than most adults. They, they, they value relationships. When I was little, I remember thinking to myself, if I can just get to my dad's lap, everything will be okay. And everything was. Everything came by grace. I'm saying little children know how to trust. They, they know how to trust. They trust. Brennan Manning wrote, ruthless trust ravishes the heart of the father. That's true. It does. They trust. And unless they've been abused, that means they receive freely and they give freely. They exude life. I mean, they constantly sing and dance and exude life. I remember as a young father, at times I'd just yell, stop it! And then I'd struggle because I needed to tell them what I wanted them to stop. Stop being so happy! Stop singing, stop dancing, stop enjoying life so much! Have a little respect for the dead. <laughs> I mean, every little child, even if they're crippled, they just naturally sing and dance and draw pictures and express themselves without shame until we send them off to school and have them do the very same things and yet now do them for a grade. And children are very unpretentious. I remember this one time we went to this pizza restaurant in California. Elizabeth had to have been about about three, and I got up to go to the bathroom. Well, I'm on the other side of the restaurant by the bathrooms. Elizabeth stands up on her chair, yells across the dining hall, Daddy, Daddy, remember to wipe! <laughs> and, then, and then she just smiled and looked around real proud of herself and, and her wisdom, and why not? I mean, she had just learned some really valuable information that she wanted to share with the world. Children are unpretentious. They don't know how to act. They know how to play, but not act. Adults know how to act. Men, adults know how to like give away everything they have, deliver their body to be burned, and yet they can do it without an ounce of love. Adults know how to do good deeds, say polite things, obey every law. Uh, they can act loving without a drop of actual love. But, well, I just wonder what would happen if we began to see ourselves as children. 
if we could like look in a mirror and see children looking back. That's a commercial for mineral water, but maybe it should be a, a commercial for living water or holy water or something like that. Whatever the case, I mean, it would be nice to find a mirror like that, wouldn't it? Well, parents are bringing their children to Jesus. And every little child sings and dances and laughs and gives himself away. Every little child is a happy exhibitionist. Hear my song, Mr. Jesus. See my dance, Mr. Mr. Jesus. I, I drew you a picture, Mr. Jesus. Here's the, the picture. Did you hear my burp, Mr. Jesus? <laughs> Children don't know how to act. Fingers in the nose, pulling on the beard, and Jesus seems to like it. It's like they have no shame, and Jesus seems to like it. Guys breaking through roofs, prostitutes weeping at his feet, tax collectors in trees, and Jesus seems to like it. The disciples rebuke him. They don't like it. They rebuke the little children. Grow up, act responsible, and Jesus grows indignant, furious, livid. Does Jesus not want us to act responsible? You know, I'm always fascinated by words that religious people use that I can't seem to find in the Bible. And responsible is one of those words. And people may mean different things by it, okay? They may mean different things by it, but I think we all would agree children are irresponsible. And that's how they receive the kingdom and enter your kingdom, irresponsibly. Children are irresponsible. And surely now we're getting at the heart of the disciples' rebuke. And, and, and you know, we disciples of Jesus, we disciples of Jesus over the years have come up with this idea of the age of responsibility. Or like I mentioned last week, the age of accountability. The age when a child becomes able to respond to Jesus. It's at that age that in many churches, children are first allowed to be baptized or come and take communion. If they come for baptism or they come down to take uh, communion before that age, responsible disciples stop them in the aisle and rebuke them. And that's really strange. It's a strange concept when baptism, communion, they symbolize salvation and salvation only happens when we're dead. 
incapable of one good response. And it's doubly strange when Jesus says, regarding the children and the infants, to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, it consists of such as these children. Let them come, let them come, let them come. Now, I realize that there's a whole lot of valuable discussion around this topic, and so at the sanctuary, we both dedicate, dedicate, dedicate infants and we baptize infants, but it's clear that Jesus saves, and he saves irresponsible infants. And so my question is, does he save anybody that's ever responsible? For we were all saved when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. At least children know they're irresponsible. I mean, maybe when you act responsible, that's exactly what it is, an act. A pretentious lie that you tell the world and you tell yourself and begin to believe, and that is that you love when you don't love. For in fact, you have to make yourself love because love is not yourself. It's an act. And we call that ability to act responsibility. Well, love is not your act. God is love. And God is not your act. It seems to me that if you think you're responsible, and by mean by, I mean by that, if, if you think you know, the way is dependent upon you, if you think the truth is dependent upon you, if you think the life is dependent upon you, if you think love is dependent upon you, if you think you're responsible for love, you cannot freely receive love and freely give love. If you think you're responsible for love, you can no longer respond to love as a child. If you think you're responsible for love, you can no longer respond to love as a child. Children are irresponsible and so able to respond to love. And God is love. Now please don't think I'm saying that children are perfect. One thing from studying my children that I know is they're not. For reasons that I barely begin to understand, they are born into this world with a terrible lack. They are born into this world without the knowledge of good and evil. So they do not know what is good. And they do not know what is evil. So they don't know that it's good to be a child. And they don't know that it's good that God the Father is God the Father. They don't know that it's good to not be the creator, for only then can you be loved by the creator. They don't know that God's word is good and trustworthy, and that the snake's lies are evil and not trustworthy. They, they, they don't know that it's good uh, to be the creation of love, to be a creature. They don't know that it's good to be the creation of love, and evil to think that you create love because God is love. In other words, they don't know that grace is good. And pride is evil. So what's wrong with us children? We don't know that it's good to be a child. 
So we take knowledge and try to be grown up. We try to exalt ourselves. We try to justify ourselves instead of allowing God to justify us and exalt us and create us. We don't want to be created good. We want to create the good. We don't want to receive everything by grace. We want to never, ever, ever need grace. We, we don't want to live in wonder and gratitude. We want to comprehend everything, control everything, and believe we've earned everything. Uh, we don't want to be irresponsible, but absolutely responsible for everything, for then we're not dependent on anything, nor vulnerable to anyone. Then we don't have to trust another. We can be entirely independent and forever alone in hell. What's wrong with us? We don't want to be children because we don't know the good. And because we lust for hell and don't know that it's evil. We don't want to be children because we each want to be what? Rich, young rulers. <laughs> Sad and lonely as hell. Jesus says you can only receive the kingdom as a child. Next verse. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke records that this man was a ruler. That is, he had many, many responsibilities. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Think about that. No one capable of a good response but God. You know the commandments, and remember the commandments, they what? They describe love. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. At that saying, the man's countenance fell, and he went away sad, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have riches. And riches is the word krema, so it can be translated matters, affairs, business, this this man had riches that were also responsibilities. And so laying down his riches, he would lay down his responsibilities. He'd be like a, a child, utterly dependent, having to trust the one that he followed. You see, the rich, now this is, I think we missed this. The rich young ruler is not a story about responsible money management. <laughs> because Jesus is inviting this guy to have no money to manage. Well, the man wanted to be a Christian, but he's just too freaking responsible, too dang grown up. How hard it will be for those who have riches and responsibilities to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You see, this rich young ruler is probably the model of virtue, ready to give an incredibly large gift to Jesus' ministry, um, if only Jesus would ask. And, and so they, they say, who can be saved? And Jesus just told them. 
children. So then the question becomes, what rich young ruler would ever empty himself of all power and authority and wealth in order to become a child? Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them, he looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, but not with God, for, for with God, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Not possible with men, but, but, but all things are possible. Impossible for men and women to be saved. To choose to become children. Impossible for men and women, but not for God. And Jesus looked at them. And they were, in fact, looking at the richest of all rulers. You, you realize reality is his responsibility. And he is forever young, making all things new. He's the richest, youngest ruler, Prince Jesus. And he was on his way to Jerusalem to give it all up. More than diamonds, everything, everything. And so Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. You know, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and they placed him in a manger, an infant. 30 some years later, he hung on a tree, crying out, Abba, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, I don't think Jesus in his earthly body chose to do that because he figured it all out and made what we'd call a responsible decision. I think he saw what his father was doing and he wanted to follow. Unpretentious, childlike, he wanted to follow. John 5, 19, Jesus said that he could only do, he could only do what he saw the Father doing. <laughs> Which means at least two utterly amazing things. Number one, God our Father has an unpretentious childlike heart. So he is constantly giving himself away. See my universe, see my flowers, see my stars, see my art. You're my artwork and I give you me. I give everything to you. Body broken and bloodshed, I give it to you. God our Father has an unpretentious childlike heart. And number two, Jesus our Lord and Savior had a mirror. So even though the universe is constantly upheld by his word of power, which seems like quite a responsibility to me, Jesus would look into his father's eyes. They were his mirror. They would, they would look into his father's eyes and hear him say, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he always remains a child, his father's child. So think about that a minute. This is so amazing, I think. Jesus had the knowledge of good and evil and yet always remains a child. St. Paul wrote, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, will all be made alive. That means the story of Adam in the garden is your story that has happened. You have taken of the tree and you're dying or you're dead. And it means 
that the story of Christ in the garden is also your story, and it will happen. You will die with him and, and rise with him. You will have the knowledge of good and evil, yet not exalt yourself. Not exalt yourself, but forever remain a happy, happy, happy child in the image of God, your Father. So, Jesus had a mirror. He suffered, he died, and he rose again to give you his mirror. He suffered, died, and rose again to give you the knowledge of God's infinite love. He suffered, died, and rose again to give you the knowledge of the good. And what is the good? God alone is good. He suffered, died, and rose to give you his spirit. What spirit? The spirit of the Son. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, writes Paul, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the spirit. What spirit? Jesus' spirit, the spirit himself, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. In Jesus' Jesus, we see the Father's heart. In Jesus, we see the Father's judgment. We see Jesus reflected back in the eyes of the Father. In Jesus, we look into a mirror, which James called the perfect law of liberty. We look and hear, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And that mirror changes you. That mirror changes us, cuts us down to size and sets us free. And that mirror shapes us into the image of God. The mirror exposes the false self, reveals the true self, and, and makes us able to respond to love. Love makes us in his own image. Love turns us into children that know the good and choose the good in freedom. And love causes us to give 10 pound diamonds to strangers with a smile. <laughs> and don't worry, if you're not there yet, it's happening. Because the story of Jesus is your story. And it doesn't mean that you won't do things that are difficult. I think that's what we think sometimes. It doesn't mean that you won't do things that are difficult and painful and hard. It means that we will, but not because we have to, but because we want to, because love has become who we are. You know, you all have a father, a heavenly father that absolutely adores you. For some reason, I don't know why, so this isn't to my credit, but I also had an earthly father that absolutely adored me and his eyes were my mirror. But in my insecurities, I'd often look away and try to please him with my, my good deeds, my responsible behavior, my hard work, seminary, whatever. He'd brag about me, he'd brag about me, but his favorite story about me used to kind of embarrass me. He used to tell people about this particular day when I was a little child and there was this horrifying thunderstorm in Littleton, Colorado. Colorado, and dad had run outside to put sandbags around the house so it wouldn't flood. I remember mom and I are standing in the front room looking out at dad, lightning's crashing all around, and suddenly there's this huge flash and a bolt right next to dad, like that. And I turned to my mom and I said, I'm gonna go out there with dad. And she said, you're not going out there with dad. You go out there with dad, you could die. You could get killed out there. And I said, well, if dad's gonna die, I'm gonna go die with him. And that was my dad's favorite story. And it used to embarrass me. Because I think, but dad, I was, I was just being a child. That wasn't responsible, that was irresponsible. It wasn't to my credit. <laughs> Maybe that's exactly the point. It wasn't to my credit. 
It was to his credit. His love had captured my heart. And now my trust ravished his. So Jesus did what he saw his father doing. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it and eat it and, and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In the morning, he did what he saw his father doing. He gave himself up on the tree as he lifted his head and he cried, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there, he ravished the heart of the Father. And now when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees you in Jesus and Jesus in you. He looks at you the same way that he looks at Jesus. Jesus even said it in the prayer, remember? Father, you have loved them as you loved me. He looks at you like he looks at Jesus and this is your mirror. The love of God broken and poured out for you. This is how much he loves you. We see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. You, you are not responsible for this. Do you hear me? This is responsible for you. We love because he first loved us. And so children, Come to the table, sit on your father's lap, and receive his love, and let him shape you in the image of himself. Amen? Dark cup is wine, light cup is juice. They're both the love of God for you. Love you, Lord, and thank you for letting us love you. I mean, thank you that we do love you because it's not to our credit, it's to yours. Thank you that you are filling all things with yourself and you are love. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, may you um, not feel responsible for this. I think feeling responsible for this means like sitting there and going, oh God, you know, um, I'm trying so hard not to lust. I confess that I, I lust. I'm trying hard not to to drink too much beer, and I confess I'm trying hard not to, to um, do this, to do that, and, and then when I do that, you know what I think of? Lusting, getting drunk, um, all sorts of things that have to do with me and how I'm making myself responsible for this, but let this be responsible for you. And I think what that means is that you look into the eyes of the Father, and, and you can do this in a, in a lot of different ways. My wife actually sits in the mirror and looks in her own eyes and, and imagines God looking back at her. When you imagine what's true, I, I think that's called faith. And uh, what, what I do, I'm not as visual, but I'll be feeling guilty, I'll be struggling, I'll be going, God, I suck as a pastor and the church is, you know, I need to, and, and I just have to stop and, and, I, and I say, even out loud sometimes, you love me, don't you? You like me when I forget about the beer I drank or the thing I saw or the whatever, and I, and I, and I don't 
really want them so much anymore. I allow this, the eyes of my Father, to be responsible for me. And so, may you believe the love of God for you and allow Him to shape you in His own image, that of a happy, happy, happy child. In Jesus' name, amen.